Welcome to Life Point Stewart's Creek. It's good to have you here with us as we celebrate the Lord together. If you're a guest, I want to extend a particularly warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us on this rainy day. Um, you know, when we come to church, we come carrying all sorts of things with us. Maybe you're carrying um, the weight of a marriage that's on the rocks. Maybe you're carrying the weight of failure as a parent. Maybe you're carrying the weight of sin as a normal sinner. You might have an illness or a loved one with an illness, someone in the hospital. We come in this room with all sorts of things going on in our lives. You know, if you're new to this church, you've not been around here for a very long time, or even if you have, it's a good reminder that we're not a people who put up any pretense of having it all together, of having everything figured out here at LifePoint. LifePoint is a church filled with sinners and sufferers, filled with broken people who can say what we just sang. Praise the Lord, our Redeemer. When we come together on Sunday mornings, one of the greatest things about what we do is we remind ourselves, we remember anew that there is one who sits upon a throne of grace, who opens wide his arms every day to sinners like us. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we praise the Lord for our Redeemer here. If you're, again, new with us, or if you have some questions about next steps, or you just want us to pray for you or your family, there's a card in the seat backs in front of you. It looks like this, our Connect card. What I want to ask you to do is take it out and fill out a little bit of information about yourself. Hand it to me in the back, or you can stick it in the basket if you need to get out quickly. And uh, we'd love to just know you, know how we can pray for you, know that you visited us, or get you some information about a next step that you may potentially have. One or two quick things to let you know about men. We have our monthly men's event, Grit, coming up. You can get on our app and on our website and get some more information about, <coughs> about that. Uh, we also have this Wednesday, if, if you're a student or you have kids who are student age, we have Dodgeball coming up. Now, Dodgeball is our uh, biggest yearly outreach event that we do for students. And so we've seen kids come to Christ. We've seen kids go deeper in their relationship with Jesus coming to our church because of this event. So we're very excited about it. And what I want to ask you to do is make sure your child is registered uh, or uh, think about, man, not only my kid, but I want to think about the kids who live on the street with us. Man, and maybe you have some friends or some, or some neighbors who have children who are student age. This would be a great thing to invite them to and a great introduction to our church. And so, again, you can go on our website, our app, find out some more information about Dodgeball. Before we get into the sermon, I want to take a brief moment to talk about something uh, that's a bit heavy. Um, as many of you know already, we had a, we had a dear, beloved uh, friend, brother, pa- uh, uh, father in the faith, uh, Stephen Martin, who went home to be with the Lord this week. Um, Stephen was the leader of our men's ministry. He, he discipled many men in our, in our church. He was great at trying to thinking about organizing men's ministry and discipleship. His passion was to serve his church. And um, his journey was completed this past week. And so Stephen was a man I only knew for a few months, but even in the short time I knew him, I, I learned what made him so special to this church. I can only imagine what kind of impact he made on many of you after being here for just a few years after spending only a few months with him. He was the man who, after a couple breakfasts with him, I thought, this is a guy I want to spend a lot of time with. This is a guy I want, I want to be around a lot. And so now, 
I'm going to get that one day. It's just going to be a bit delayed. Uh, Stephen, you know, I struggle to say that Stephen lost his battle with COVID because Stephen was a strong man. Strong, strong man. Very masculine, very manly. He looked tough, veteran, strong man's man. So he wasn't a loser. I hate hate to say that he lost his battle with COVID. You know, so what, what I like to think is that after weeks of fighting with COVID, uh, he died, but the COVID in him also died. So that's not a loss. It's more like a draw. <laughs> Stephen was a wonderful man to know. And I know that his loss will be felt here at this church. Uh, just so you know, R.C. knows. Uh, R.C. was made aware. This is one of the things that R.C. said, while I'm gone, you can reach out to me. This is one of the, th- the, th- the things that we were told to, to call R.C. about if this were to happen. So uh, what we want to do is we want to... Grieve collectively as a church that one of our own has gone to be with the Lord and is no longer with us. We also have a new widow in our church, his wife Kay, who also just got done battling a horrible bit of COVID. Now, thank the Lord she's home now and has her daughters there taking care of her. And you have already stepped up to make sure. I mean, I think she has meals, lunch, and dinner. I mean, I think she's going to be eating good for a very long time. Thank you for the way that many of you have already stepped up to reach out to her Pray, praying for her, giving her food, going around, helping her around her house. I would ask that we continue doing that in the spirit of James one twenty seven that we, that we take care of uh, the orphans and the widows among us. And so please continue praying for Kay um, and looking for opportunities to serve her. Stephen's going to have a celebration of life service here at the creek on October 23rd at 2 o'clock. You're going to hear more about that as, as time goes on, so you don't have to, if you want to put it in your calendar now, you can, but you're going to hear more about it. And I hope that you'll join us here as we remember the life of our dear brother, Stephen and as we look forward to seeing him again one day. In light of that, let's pray, and then we're going to hop into the Word together. Father, we have so much to be thankful about. Thankful for your Word. Thankful for our community here together. Thank you for what we just sang about, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, and that your love will never fail us that you have covered all of our sins, taken our guilt upon yourself, bore our sins in our place, clothed us in your righteousness so that we could become the righteousness of God through faith. But we also come with heavy hearts. We're living in a world where the reality of death and suffering is so apparent everywhere we look. And then sometimes it hits even closer to home when someone we love and cherish dies. We rejoice that Stephen knew you, that he's free and healthy, that he is received and welcomed into his eternal home. We take comfort in knowing that your word says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, although we admit, Lord, that we were envious of more time with him. We wanted him to walk out of the hospital and be with us for a little bit longer. But we trust your plan. We trust your providence. Lord, we pray for Kay, that your comfort and peace would be upon her, that she would be able to grieve in a healthy way, that she would continue to grieve while trusting in you, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your love for her and your faithfulness toward her in this time. Lord, I pray that the way that we love her and serve her over the coming weeks, months, and years would be a testimony to her of the way that you love her 
and that we would truly be your hands holding her up as she goes on without her beloved husband. Thank you for new life. Thank you for the resurrection that will come one day when death is finally defeated once for all, when all the saints are raised up from their graves and we go into the new Jerusalem together. We look forward to that day and we ask you to come. Come soon. We say all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take out your Bibles. Open them up to Revelation chapter 18. You know, while you're turning there, <coughs> uh, I was thinking earlier this week and I was preparing for the sermon um, about some of the similarities and differences between Brussels and Middle Tennessee, uh, uh, America and Belgium. And there is uh, many differences, right? We speak different languages. We have different cultures, different customs. We often eat different foods. We have different worldviews. Very, very different. Uh, very, very different in many ways. Uh, they also get a month of vacation minimum. That's a, that's a difference that they have, uh, an enviable difference <laughs> that they have. But one thing that is um, similar between Brussels and Middle Tennessee is that there's a church on every corner. You don't tend to think about that when you think of Europe. You don't think of churches everywhere, but it's true. There are churches everywhere. Uh, Europeans don't build very high skylines, and so usually the tallest things that you see are steeples, spires. Now, those churches are uh, like mostly empty, but they're there. So you have these churches everywhere, just like you have churches here. Uh, uh, now, now, again, churches here and there are, are a little bit different in a few ways. Again, churches there uh, are a bit empty, but a bit more beautiful. And our churches here tend to be a little bit more full and sometimes a bit more um, ugly. Just be straight up. Uh, <laughs> whereas churches in Brussels have these ornate, beautiful carvings of saints. Uh, the, the corridors are lined with beautiful pieces of art painted centuries ago by some of the world's greatest artists. They have the most breathtaking stained glass windows depicting biblical stories, stories from church history. We churches in America have these really cool um, like signs in front of our churches that have funny little quotes on them, right? Who needs beautiful art and architecture when you got like pithy church marquees, right? Here's a couple great ones that have been spotted around, around churches on their little, on their signs out front. Um, the fact that there's a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven says a lot about anticipated travel numbers. I don't know if I agree with that necessarily, but it's funny. Uh, honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> uh, tweet others the way you want to be tweeted. That's, that's too real for some of y'all, man. Some of y'all be mean on Twitter. I could be mean on Twitter, I guess. Uh, this is good. <laughs> help us, Lord, help us to be the people our dogs think we are. Whoever stole our AC unit, keep it. It's hot where you're going. <laughs> okay, the, the last one's my favorite, but, but, but it's, not, it's not as apparently funny uh, up front, so you have to think about it for a minute. Um, one of my personal favorites is, <laughs> we love hurting people. Uh, what? I think the last one illustrates a little bit of the point I'm trying to make. A lot of times when, you, when you're just passing by these church marquees, you, the, the meaning is not apparent. It's like, wait. Do you love hurting people or do you love hurting people? 
<laughs> right? Well, a lot of us can see, there, she gets it now. There you go. It took a minute. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of us can see Revelation this way, where the meaning seems very unclear to us. You know, we can treat the book of Revelation like it should be called anything but Revelation. A lot of times we can think of the book of Revelation as more like the book of concealment, not meant to reveal something to us, but to obscure the truth from us. So what I hope this series has been able to do is I hope that it's been able to take some of the blinders off and help us be able to see the book of Revelation for what it is, uh, especially as we approach the end. As we're going to see today in Revelation chapter 18, uh, Jesus sends Christians, both in the first century and in every subsequent century, a very crystal clear message. Over the bulk of this book... Christ has given warning after warning through seals, through bowls, through trumpets. And we've kind of talked about this, where we've seen God's wrath over sins from these different angles, uh, through, through these seals, bowls, and judgments. He's warned us of what's to come, and he has helped us see the evidences of his wrath currently on the earth because of sin today. So now as we look at Revelation 18, we're going to see the final destruction of Babylon the Great at the hands of Christ. So we talked about Babylon the Great last week. In Revelation 18, we're going to see the final destruction of Babylon the Great at the hands of Christ. And we're going to see Christ calling his people to resist and flee Babylon before it's too late. If Babylon represents all of the worldly systems throughout history that lure the people of God away from faithfulness, then God is calling us today to wake up, to snap out of her spell, and to get away from her before the hammer comes down on her. Because when it does, when the hammer does come down on Babylon the Great, it will also come down on all of those who clung to her, all of those found within her. So what I want to do, just like last week, is I want to read all of Revelation chapter 18. <coughs> Let me prepare myself. So again, take your Bibles out or uh, direct your eyes to the screen and follow along with me. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints." And all who have been slain on earth. So much of Revelation can be understood by using the Old Testament as our interpretive tool. We don't use numerology or any sort of weird Nostradamus stuff to understand Revelation. We use scripture. We use the Old Testament to understand what this book is saying. This passage refers back to Isaiah 13 and 34, where Isaiah described the destruction of the literal kingdoms of Babylon and Edom, kingdoms that oppress the people of God and practice all sorts of wicked, sinful, religious rituals. Now, in Revelation 18, God's promise to annihilate metaphorical Babylon is fulfilled as he swings the hammer of judgment because of her rampant sin. Now you may wonder why in this chapter and in the chapter from last week, God is using all of these references to sexual immorality. He calls Babylon the great prostitute. Why is he saying that the kingdoms of the earth, the kings of the earth, the people commit sexual immorality with her? Well, in Scripture, God uses the fidelity of marriage as a metaphor for the faithfulness that should characterize our relationship with him. 
So giving ourselves to anything else, surrendering our loyalty to him for the sake of something else is being unfaithful. It's being unfaithful in the way that a husband or wife could be unfaithful to each other if they break the covenant of marriage. This is why Babylon the Great is characterized this way. She seduces the bride of Christ away from faithfulness to the bridegroom. Her attacks specifically are targeted at the people of God, which is why she's called the great prostitute. She's trying to lure us away from faithfulness to the bridegroom. That's why God speaks in covenantal terms here. Now, evidence of this can be seen everywhere we look in the world. We can see the spirit of Babylon everywhere. You turn on the television And Babylon the Great appears on every channel. We all carry around 24-hour access to Babylon the Great in our pockets. Many of our children are carrying around 24-hour access to Babylon the Great in their pockets and in their bedrooms. Escaping her pull seems impossible. This is what happens to a civilization that turns its back on the king. What we see in this chapter what we see in our world. Centuries of rebellion have left us here in the West like Babylon, a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Norm MacDonald, who you normally wouldn't quote in a sermon, he also died this week actually. He was a comedian and an unlikely philosopher when he wanted to be. He once said this, the enlightenment turned us away from truth and toward a darkling, weakening horizon, sad and gray to see. The afterglow of Christianity is near gone now and a stagian silence lurks and waits. Can we see this in America? Pat was sharing some statistics with us earlier this week as we were preparing for the sermon. He showed us uh, some statistics he found from 1962 to 2003, decades of rampant societal change. Some good, some very bad. In that time period, births to unmarried mothers increased over 500%. Child abuse increased over 2,300%. Divorce rose over 350%. Illegal drug use used among teens increased over 600%. Teenage suicide rose over 400%. It might be at an all-time high now. Some like 20, 18 to 20% of pregnancies are terminated in abortion clinics. There There are some among us who are old enough to remember the freedom that the sexual revolution, second and third wave feminism, and a culture wide rejection of God's word promised us. It promised us a better future, a more liberated future, freed from the bonds and shackles of ancient arcane religion. But what has it brought us? Suffering, death, pain, heartache, malaise that touches each and every one of us. Now, this is something I really stressed to our church in Belgium when I was their teaching pastor. Societies don't get better when they abandon Christ. We do a lot of talking about how bad cultural Christianity is. Cultural Christianity has problems. Cultural Christianity can save no one. No one's a Christian because they're born into a Christian culture. But I'll tell you something, friends. Cultural Christianity is a lot better than the alternative. You know what's worse than cultural Christianity? 
cultural paganism. Because the further a society moves away from the word of God informing the moral center, the ethics, the general agreed upon way of life of that people, the worse the society gets by far. It doesn't get better. You don't get to replace Christ with something else and then get to flourish. When the word of God is no longer informing the moral values of a civilization, it becomes worse, as we see in this text. Now, of course, it would be easy for me to go on here. We could preach a long, depressing series on this, but I think after the past several weeks in Revelation, we get it. I think we understand. We're living in a messed up world. We're living in a world that God's hand of judgment is is firmly upon. We see it. We've seen it in the text So what I want to do today is look at two realities from this passage that should give us power to withstand Babylon's pull. That's what I want us to see today. Two realities from this text that help us withstand Babylon's pull. Those things are, first, knowing that Babylon will fall. Babylon will fall. Two, the faithful are called to flee. Babylon will fall. The faithful are called to flee. If we remain loyal to God's word and we hold fast to him in faith, then we will remain standing when Babylon falls. So let's look at our first point. Babylon will fall. The chapter opens up with an angel crying out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Verse 21 says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. This is a reference back to Jeremiah. When Jeremiah threw a stone into the Euphrates River to show that the ancient civilization of Babylon would fall and never rise up again. This passage says that the sound of harpists, musicians, flute players, and trumpeteers will be heard no more. The music that once filled nights of dancing and celebrating all the things that God hated will stop. The party will end. All the sin that Babylon enjoyed comes to an end. When Christ throws her down, there will be nothing left to enjoy, which is why it says weddings, celebration, entertainment, economy, all of these things will come to a grinding halt and will lie in shambles. Babylon the Great promises joy. It promises pleasures. It promises riches. It promises fulfillment. It promises purpose to your life. But in the end, it only brings destruction. It only brings death and heartache. This passage says that the kings and merchants and mariners all weep as they watch Babylon burn to the ground. Now, there's maybe two reasons why they would be doing this. First of all, they shared in Babylon's rebellion. It says they they marveled at her torment. They see Babylon's judgment and they think, I'm next. It's going to come for me next because I was with her. That's one reason to, to mourn. But there's also another reason. There are a lot of people who stand to make a lot of money off of Babylon's rebellion. People who live extravagant lives, riches and wealth and luxury off of Babylon's wickedness. It says that the kings weep on account of her as the prestige and opulence that they gained from her comes to an end. There are many who sell their souls to Babylon 
falling into her seduction and gaining all the pleasures that their hearts desire. But now it's time to pay the piper. And the cost of their rebellion leaves them desolate, vacant, and mourning. Here's the point. Those who put their hopes in the things of this world will suffer total loss. Those who put their hopes in the things of this world will suffer total loss. There is pleasure in sin for a season. There is joy in rebellion for a moment. But Babylon is propped up on nothing but lies. And when you're propped up on lies, the center cannot hold, and one day it will all come crashing down. Friends, worldviews and lifestyles that are built upon any reality outside of the Word of God are all bound to go the way of Babylon. It may look like the ones being made rich off of Babylon's lies today are living in luxury, and that they have nowhere to go but up. But this passage assures us that the day of reckoning is coming. There are powerful people out there who are able to impose all sorts of wickedness on the masses today, but one day their power will run out. Now, this may sound like another bleak revelation message. I understand that this is heavy, but this is not bleak. This should give us hope as the people of God. My friends, we will outlast Babylon. We will outlast Babylon. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The Christians who had their heads cut off, who were burned at the stake, who were boiled in oil, who were bombed in their churches, who were shot in the head, who lost their jobs, who were maligned, ostracized, slandered, and oppressed because of their faith in Christ, are vindicated here. That Babylon, the enemy, does not get the final word. Christ gets the final word. Most importantly, the glory of God that has been rejected and maligned by Babylon is vindicated in her destruction. This is the hope that the people of God have. This is a reality that would have given tremendous hope to John's original audience who were suffering immensely for their faith. It might look like the enemy is winning, but we can rest assured that he will be annihilated. That is, the people of God, we will never be on the wrong side of history if we are serving the author of history. Pagans don't get to tell us how the story will end. We know how the story will end. And listen, friends, I know that we all believe this. Like, we all get it. Babylon the Great is strong. Babylon the Great will be destroyed. Christ will reign above it all. Christ will reign supreme. It will all work out in the end. It will all be good. I'm not telling anyone anything new today. I don't want to convince you to know this. I want to convince you to live like you know this. 
to live like you know that Babylon will fall? How does this change my life? How does this affect the way that I live? When I walk out these doors and I go home and I turn on the TV or I go to work or I'm with my friends or I'm with my kids, how does the fact that Babylon will fall, what does that do to my life? How does it change me? Living like we know Babylon will fall means that we absolutely, as the people of God, refuse to be intimidated by her power. We refuse to be intimidated by her power. It means that we don't live in fear of what she can do to us. My dear friends, we should be a lot more concerned about what Babylon can do in us rather than what she can do to us. Living like you know Babylon will fall means that we absolutely refuse to be pathetic, simpering cowards who turn on the television and go, what's going to happen to us poor Christians? They don't like us out there. What's going to happen to all these churches? We are more than conquerors in Christ. Do you know what that means? To be more than a conqueror? It means that not only will you see the enemy conquered, you'll see the enemy humiliated. It means that when the dust settles and Babylon falls, the people of God will remain standing. Babylon, the whole spirit on the last day when it falls, will remain standing. And all the little spirits of Babylon that we see in our world today will fall and we will remain standing if we are faithful to God's word. If we're faithful to God's word, not our version of God's word, not our own specific special interpretation of God's word, not our own twisting of God's word to fit our agenda, God's word. It means that all of the lies of the sexual revolution, feminism, LGBT ideology, and all postmodernism will utterly collapse in on itself as it's beginning to today. Oh, friends, do not believe the lies. You turn on your television, you get on your social media feeds, and it seems like these ideologies are as strong as ever. They're cracked. They're fraying. They're falling apart. The center cannot hold when your ideology is built upon lies. Don't be intimidated. Do not bow the knee. Do not be scared. Do not be nervous. Babylon will fall. Knowing that Babylon will fall means that we know that all pundits and politicians who spew poison ideology will one day stand before the judge of all the earth and give an account for what they've done. Here's the thing about the people of God. The people of God faithful to God's word. I want to be clear about that not false Christians, not people who twist God's word. Here's the thing about the people of God who are faithful to what God's word says. We're right. We have the truth. We are prophets. We know what the future will bring. We know what will happen to Babylon, so we don't have to be intimidated by her. Instead, we have to flee from her, resist her influence, and separate ourselves from her so that when the hammer drops, we aren't standing in the way. And as we flee, we're trying to get as many of our friends and our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers to come out with us through faith in Jesus. This brings us to our second point, the faithful flee. Verse 4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, when I say we must flee from Babylon, I don't mean you run in terror, that you run and hide out of fear. 
Fleeing Babylon means that we separate ourselves from her influence so that we will not fall into her sin. Remember last week we saw how easily the great prostitute can seduce us? Even John, remember, he's receiving divine revelation. And even John in that moment had to be snapped out of it because he was so captivated by the allure of Babylon. So God is calling us now. I'm going to bring down my wrath on Babylon and you don't want to be there when it happens. So come out of her, flee from her, lest you take part in her sins and share in her judgment. But oh, friends, how many people there are in the world, in the church, how many people there are in the church who know the truth of God's word, who know what God's word says, who have been taught, brought up, discipled, and yet are still being lured away by the pull of Babylon. Many times when we think about the way Babylon will lure us, we think about it in terms of vice. Think about it in terms of sins. Babylon certainly does do that. But you know where I think a lot of good-hearted Christian folk go wrong? Is that we neglect that Babylon also lures us away with virtue twisted into something evil. Beware of virtue gone wrong. How many people have allowed the spirit of Babylon to define love, freedom, empowerment, kindness for us? Thinking that as long as we're saying those words and going along with those ideas, we're in the right. But Babylon tells you that love is unconditional tolerance at the expense of truth. Babylon tells you that freedom is the ability to live however you want. That's not freedom. That's slavery. She tells you freedom is the ability to live however you want rather than the ability to live righteously. That is freedom. Babylon tells you that empowerment is about making much of yourself instead of flourishing within God's design. Babylon tells us that kindness is always making people feel good even if it means lying to them. Babylon tells us that our hope is in political figures. Fly your flag with your Messiah politician's name on it and tell the world the good news of their political agenda. Babylon tells us that the market will solve all of the problems. And so all of our deepest problems will ultimately be solved by policy decisions, by capitalism or socialism or whatever else, rather than hearts transformed by the gospel. You know what I think most Christians think about when I say things like this? When we talk about things like this? You want to know what I think most Christians think? What I can even think when I'm preparing for this? They can think, yeah, those people really are being seduced by Babylon. Man, I I know a lot of people in my life, Babylon's got them, they're hooked. I should probably say something to him about it later. Maybe I'll passive-aggressively post about it on Facebook. (laughs) But this is a call to all of us. This call to come out of Babylon is a call to all of us. All throughout scriptures, God calls his people to separate from the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves from the world. We're not Amish. We're not called to be monks You know, in Jeremiah, 
God told the Jews who were living in Babylonian exile to settle down, build houses, live in them, plant vineyards, start families, take wives, have children. He said, seek the welfare of your city where you live. Well, like Israel, we are living in a metaphorical Babylon. We are exiles in this land. And the spirit of Babylon is always trying to lure us away. And if she succeeds, if she lures us into apostasy, then we will share in her destruction. But while we're in exile, we're not called to isolate. Instead, we are called to insulate. You know what I mean when I say that? This means that we fortify the institutions that God gave us to help us resist the pull of Babylon so that we aren't drawn in by her. And in doing this, we become salt and light to the world. This is why it's important for us to have strong local churches and why we must all be deeply committed to our strong local churches. The Christians who are the most swayed by Babylon are those who do not value the church as they ought. They spend more time letting Fox or CNN tell them how they should think rather than digging into God's word with God's people. And so, of course, they're led astray. Sin festers in their hearts and grows because they have no one in their lives who can pull them back on the right track when they begin to go astray. Like we talked about last week, this is why we must have strong, godly families. Family is the place where the faith is handed down. Families are the place where faith is handed down. The number one indicator of children coming to faith in Christ is not kids' ministry, not student ministry, not programs, not small groups. It's godly parents in godly homes by a long shot. The number one indicator. You want your children to be saved? Disciple them. Homes like this are homes where Christ is the center Homes that are ordered according to God's design. Homes where the reality of the gospel shapes the lives of mom and dad. Homes where the Bible is read. Where families pray together. Where parents discipline their children and command respect from them. Our families, our churches, are the resistance cells that we have to fortify in order to stand strong in the wake of Babylon's pull. And in a dark world, a world where people are waking up, and they are, a world where people are waking up to the reality that rampant sin, sexual immorality, and pluralism don't actually satisfy, don't actually lead to a better civilization. When rates of anxiety and depression are through the roof, where people are realizing that our institutions actually can't save us from everything. This is a world where Christians must be prepared to shine blindingly bright. Not insulate ourselves, not heap more darkness on the world by being jerks, but by shining the blindingly bright light of the gospel. And if we want a light that shines far, then we have to shine brightest here. 
Strong churches and strong homes produce strong Christians, and strong Christians are bright lights in the darkness of our world. But Christians who are lured into sin, who are lured into the comfort and self-righteousness of Babylon, put their lights under a basket. They give hope to no one, and they lead no one to Christ. Fleeing Babylon means fleeing her sins and instead living holy lives set apart for the glory of God no matter what it costs us. I want to tell you a story. A story about a man named Franz Jägerstrata. He's Austrian. Franz was born in a small village in Austria in 1907. He was not born to Christian parents. Um, he was actually born out of wedlock. He didn't grow up with his father, and he didn't have a father in his life until 1917 when his mother remarried and his stepfather adopted him. Franz had a reputation as a young man of being wild. He was the leader of a local motorcycle gang. He was arrested for street brawling, and he too had children, a daughter, out of wedlock. But after he married, he came to faith in Christ. His wife was a believer, and they vowed together to put the word of God at the center of their home. They would read the Bible every day together. They would challenge each other with God's word. They would mold their entire lives, their entire marriage, their entire parenting around God's word. That was the foundation of their home, (coughs) and happily so. At the start of World War II, Franz was called away from his family to go to basic training for the German army. However, he was allowed to go back home after seven months because of a special request from the local magistrate in his small, small Austrian village. Franz was aware, as time went on, of the evil ideology underlying the Nazi regime. He knew that the Nazis were beginning to euthanize people they deemed undesirable. He knew that Hitler's war that he was raging on the world was an unrighteous, wicked war. He could see where this was going, and he could see the spirit of Babylon seducing his countrymen, even the villagers in his small Austrian farming town. When it came time for his small town to take a vote to see whether or not they would align themselves with the Nazis or resist the Nazis, the vote was near unanimous in favor of joining the Nazis, except for one dissenting vote, friends. After several months went on and the war began to continue picking up, Franz and the other young men in his village, or the other men in his village, were called upon once again to come and fight. They were conscripted again to come and fight for the Third Reich. And what they were, the first thing they were charged to do was to sign a loyalty oath to Hitler. Sign a pledge, a piece of paper saying, I align myself with Hitler, I will be loyal to him, I will not do anything to halt his mission of world domination, or however they phrased it. However, Franz refused to sign the oath. Despite the pressure his neighbors put on him, despite shame and ridicule his family endured as they were be- became effectively outsiders in their small village, despite many other Christians accusing him of being too extreme. Isn't that amazing? Too political. You're being too extreme, man. Take, take it easy, man. Don't be so legalistic. Despite clergymen encouraging him to bow the knee to Hitler like they did, 
Despite the threat of imprisonment and death, Franz staunchly refused to sign the loyalty pledge to Hitler and was put in prison for it. When he was being pressured to sign the, lo- uh, the loyalty oath, people told him that, listen, you can just sign the statement. You don't have to mean it. You don't have to mean it in your heart. No one cares what's in your heart. You can have your convictions in your heart. Just sign this piece of paper. You can go home and curse Hitler all you want. All we need you to do is sign on the dotted line. This is a common tactic of the spirit of Babylon. Just go along with it. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to agree with the ideology. Just sit back, roll over, and let it go. Let it, let it continue trucking on. Just let the storm pass. Don't cause a scene. Don't be an extremist. But Franz would do no such thing. While in prison, he wrote, I would not exchange my small, dirty cell for a king's palace if I was required to give up even a small part of my faith. Disciples of Jesus must learn to perceive the suffering of their master as unavoidable and to apprehend the religion of Jesus as the religion of the cross. Franz was told that no one would ever know about his resistance. What do you think we're going to do? Tell Hitler about it? You think Hitler's going to change his mind because you're not signing a piece of paper? Your resistance will do nothing. You are one man against a a, a world-conquering power. You can do nothing to stop it. So why try to stand in the way? It's just going to run you over. But he refused. And in 1943, he was decapitated by the Nazis for his refusal to sign a loyalty oath to Hitler. His decision to flee from the lure of Babylon and stand firm upon Christ cost him his life. But let me ask you a question. Where's the Reich today? Where's Hitler today? Where's the Nazi party today? Fallen. Crushed. Pathetic, humiliated. Where is our brother Franz today? Standing in victory with King Jesus over Babylon. When he died, for all he knew, Hitler would win the war and take over the world. It looked like that may happen. It didn't look like the Nazis would fall, but they did. And today, Franz is the victor. You want to know one of my favorite things about Franz Jägerstrata? You would have never heard about him. I love that. He didn't write any books. He didn't start any movements. He didn't start a revolution. He didn't start, he didn't orchestrate some sort of coup within the Nazi party to oust Hitler. He didn't make any great speeches. He was like us, ordinary, just an ordinary believer living an ordinary life of faithfulness. Everything we know about Franz comes from letters he wrote to his wife in prison, court documents, and stories his family told about him. He was like you. He was like me. An ordinary believer who resisted the pull of Babylon and stood firm upon Christ when the time came. And even though it cost him his life, he today is the victor. And Babylon fell. Like our brother Franz, May we be people who live ordinary lives of faithfulness. I don't want anyone in this church to start some kind of movement. I'm not calling anyone to do that. No one really does that. so rare. We're not called to be movement starters, world changers. You know what we're called to do? Go home and love our families. Devote ourselves to our local churches. Work hard in our jobs. Read our Bibles. Pray. Be ordinary people who live hidden lives. 
of faithfulness who resist Babylon's pull. May we do that. May we be a church who shines brightly so that we can shine far. Babylon is defeated. You are victorious over her in Christ. So flee from her influence and cling to your Savior and shine so bright that on your way out, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers cannot help but see that you are running to something better. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we are living in a very difficult day. The Lord of Babylon is so oppressive and present everywhere around us. Help us not to be cowards who shrink back, who whine about how hard it is. Help us to be victors. People who walk in victory because of what you have done. People who trust what you have done. And who look to Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one in whose name every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We look to you, Christ triumphant, Christ the judge, Christ the king. Help us never to bend the knee, no matter how hard the pressure gets. Help us to be strong. Help us to be tender and loving, knowing that we have the victory, so we don't need to beat up people in our lives with that truth. Instead, we're calling people to something better. Help us to do that. We look to you in faith. Have mercy on us. Give us strength. And hasten the day when Babylon falls. We say all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.